Everybody, welcome to the debrief. I'm Devin Dwyer. Hope you're staying warm on this Monday. It is getting cold out there. The polar vortex is bearing down in the Midwest. 31 states right now under severe winter weather warnings and watches. We'll have a live report coming up shortly. Meanwhile, we're keeping an eye on what's going on in Venezuela right now. Hundreds of thousands turning out on the heels of that endorsement by President Trump of the opposition leader there. What's Nicolas Maduro up to today? We'll have more on that coming up. Meanwhile, the 2020 field for president getting a little more crowded, but now one man's getting in the race, not a Republican or a Democrat. Who is he? What's he up to? More on that shortly after your headlines. A desperate search continues in Brazil after a dam collapsed, killing at least 58 people. Firefighters are back at work, digging through miles of reddish-brown sludge in search of survivors. An Israeli rescue team has joined the search efforts with sonar equipment to help locate people buried in the mud. Health officials in Washington state have now confirmed 34 cases of measles. 30 of those sick never got the shot. Some new concerns around Facebook. The company now says it has plans to allow users on Messenger, Instagram and WhatsApp to send messages to each other. Critics say even though the apps will stay separate, the move raises both security and antitrust concerns. The full IRS workforce is now back at work under the short-term deal to reopen the government, and April 15th remains the date to submit tax returns for most Americans. But even with IRS workers back in place, refunds could still be delayed. And with new tax laws now in effect, many filers may want to consider an accountant or tax professional this year to correctly file taxes on time. And to get good answers to questions, including a summary of key tax changes, go to the IRS website. IRS.gov is now mobile and tablet friendly. And today is Bubble Wrap Appreciation Day. Yes, it's a thing. A Facebook group called Popping Bubble Wrap has a half million members. I think I need some bubble wrap here. Uh, meanwhile, some record-breaking cold weather is sweeping through the Midwest today. In fact, my home state of Minnesota getting pummeled by the snow. You can see the wipeouts on some of the roads. There are Alex Perez uh, is in Chicago where much of that snow is heading. It is cold there. Alex, give us the latest on how bad things are going to get this week. Yeah, Devin, even for the hardiest of Midwesterners like you, like me, this is pretty <clears throat> bad, dangerous, cold. We're expecting possibly 50 to 60 degrees below zero feel like temperatures come Tuesday, come Wednesday and Thursday of this week. But take a look. There's about seven inches of snow or so that fell across the Chicago area uh, in the overnight hours. Um, so we're dealing with that. And that, of course, is making the commute getting from point A to point B a complete nightmare. But look in the distance here. It looks like the North Pole. It's not. This is Chicago. That's like Michigan way off in the distance there. And you can see those ice mounds slowly growing as the temperature continues to drop and the water continues to freeze. Now, officials here, the one thing they want to make sure people know here and in cities across the Midwest where this cold air is dipping down into the next couple of days is that it is not a joke. It is very, very serious. And you can do some real harm to yourself if you're outside and not completely taking care of yourself, making sure you have very little or no exposed skin. It takes just a couple of minutes for frostbite to begin when we're talking about temperatures this 
cold. So this is really just the beginning. Devin, it's going to get only worse, colder from here on out for the rest of the week. Yeah, it sure sounds like it, Alex. How are people there dealing with this besides bundling up? I imagine that uh, airports, construction workers, the city taking some steps to prepare people for what's going to be a very cold stretch. Yeah, you know, city uh, cities like Chicago, Minneapolis, other places in the Midwest, no strangers to cold, but uh, it's still a big headache for a lot of people who have to go out and go to work and do their usual regular uh, routine things. So the city taking no chances. They've uh, uh, activated all of their emergency plans to make sure that residents are aware of how dangerous things are out there. They're asking neighbors to check on uh, other residents, other neighbors who might not be able to help themselves or get to a warm place. And they're telling people to make sure you stay somewhere warm. And if you've got to go outside, make sure you layer up. And, you know, I, I, if I look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, it's because I got a lot of clothes on. I've got two coats on under this. I've got two hats on under here, two pairs of socks, these snow pants. Inside these gloves, I've got a couple pairs of these warmers in there to keep my hands warm because the moment your fingers are exposed, your ears are exposed, uh, it can become very, very dangerous. So it's really a matter of reminding everyone uh, the next couple of days. We've been through something like this before. It doesn't happen often. We've been through it before. We just got to be careful when we're heading out there and uh, spending any time outside. Hey, Alex, you definitely do need to be careful. Keep those charcoal hand warmers uh, going. Thank you so much for being here, Alex. Uh, let's get the latest on the forecast of the polar vortex moving east from our Sam Champion. Hey, Sam. Hi, Devin. Here's the weather that we're watching during the day today. So we're talking about a brutal Arctic outbreak through the country, and there's going to be snow involved and ice involved and rain involved, and this is a good part of the country. Let's just get right to it. We'll show you what everyone's expecting. Uh, you'll notice we've got some pictures coming out of North Dakota. This is a lot of blowing snow. It's a very fine powdery snow because the air is so dry. You've got other shots, people showing you some cars off the road. This is all to remind you, this is recently, it has nothing to do with our next couple of days, of what it's going to be like. And the reason I want people to see this is in the deep south. We've got a pocket of snow underneath those watches and mornings that are covering more than half the country of accumulating snow into the deep south. And it's just something that is going to cause a lot of trouble all the way from Jackson, Mississippi into Atlanta. The big snowfall totals will be around New England. They'll also be the higher elevations of uh, uh, of northern New England. But look right around the Great Lakes where it's more than a foot of snow there. But the one to three inches is going to cause more of a more of a problem because people just aren't used to getting it in these areas. The big headline will not be what falls, but what comes after after the snow. Look at these cold temperatures Tuesday, but then we double down with it on Wednesday. These are wind chills and actual temperatures that have not been felt in some of these areas since the 90s. So the one thing I wanted to show you before we go back, Devin, is just how cold this air is. This is in Minnesota so far. This is just that edge of the coldest air. Watch this little soap bubble hard freeze and then break. And that happens to all of us. When wind chills are 30 below zero or more, you can freeze your skin in about 10, 15 minutes. So it's really dangerous stuff, Devin. All right, thanks so much for that, Sam. Again, definitely everybody stay warm this week out there. Meanwhile, shifting gears now to Venezuela where there are growing calls uh, for Nicolas Maduro to step down. Thousands, as you see there in the streets of Caracas. This is five days after President Trump said the U.S. would officially recognize the opposition leader in Venezuela, Juan Guaido. He's refusing to step down. There are more protests today. And this weekend, I think we have some pictures 
Nicholas Maduro out in force, unafraid, showing flexing some military muscle during some exercises uh, this weekend, defiant to stay in power. We're joined now by Cody Weddle. He's a freelance journalist down in Caracas, joins us now. Corey, thanks for being here. The big question is, will the military there stay loyal to Maduro? Uh, and is there any concern that, uh, that he could call on the military to use violence against some of these protesters? You're right. Those are the two concerns here. And there's reason for concern because in the in the U.S., uh, Venezuelan military attache, which is like the military diplomat for Venezuela in the U.S., he defected. He said he's now supporting Juan Guaido as the president. And there's also uh, sort of this movement in uh, consulates, uh, Venezuelan consulates around the world, according to Juan Guaido, this opposition leader. Um, and he says that consulates around the world, Venezuelan consulates, are now recognizing him as the president as well. So the last element here for Juan Guaido is for the military here inside the country uh, to support uh, him as well. And there's reason to believe that may happen as well because uh, these lower level military folks are the ones who are really affected by the economic and humanitarian crisis here. And Corey, what's happening down there today? We saw those pictures, remarkable pictures from late last week and over the weekend of hundreds of thousands turning out. Do you expect more protests today? Uh, what's on tap? There aren't uh, organized protests today. Wang Guaido, uh, the man claiming the presidency here, he's called for massive protests again on Wednesday and Saturday. Here in Caracas and Venezuela, we see protests uh, frequently for uh, regular everyday uh, problems of infrastructures breaking down here. So there are often protests for lack of water and lack, uh, lack of running water and lack of um, uh, gas, which people use for cooking. But these big, massive protests, the next ones are, for, are scheduled for Wednesday and Saturday. All right, going to be a volatile week in Caracas. Cody Waddell, thank you so much for joining us live from Venezuela. Moving to politics now back home, the field uh, to challenge Donald Trump in the 2020 election is getting just a little bit crowder. Kamala Harris, the senator uh, from California, made it official over the weekend. So too did former Starbucks CEO and founder Howard Schultz. He got into the race. For more on the latest in the 2020 sweepstakes, let's bring in our Rick Klein, political director in Washington. Hey, Rick, great to see you. Uh, so let's start with, with this news. Uh, that Howard Schultz made overnight. Uh, he announced on 60 Minutes that he's seriously considering a run, but not as a Republican or a Democrat. Critical here is that he says he would be a third-party candidate. He says he would be an independent centrist. Uh, that would be a, quite a move, and it is it has garnered quite the reaction uh, from former Obama strategists, some of the current Democrats who are running for president, uh, and a whole lot of people in the Twitterverse who say this is not the time to go third party. This would siphon votes away from the Democratic candidate and could guarantee Donald Trump his reelection. But Howard Schultz says he has thought this through. I've talked to some of his advisors. They are already making plans to have him placed on all 50 state ballots should he decide to make this official. His book tour is kicking off this week. He's going to be everywhere, and he's going to be asked a lot of tough questions about whether he would play spoiler in this race. And it's not just uh, Howard Schultz, of course. We've seen this field growing over the past couple of weeks. Pete Buttigieg getting in last week as well. Kamala Harris making it official yesterday. Uh, she had a huge crowd out there in her hometown of Oakland. 
the biggest crowd so far of the very early, very young election cycle, 20,000 people out there in Oakland. It was the closest thing to a presidential-style address we've seen from any of the candidates. It's notable to me, Devin, and not lost on many in the Democratic Party, that all of the other candidates so far, whether that's Elizabeth Warren or Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, none of them have decided to go big like this and show the command and the, the confidence, frankly, of, of trying to make a big rally. And starting it in her hometown of Oakland, showing she's not going to be shy of where she's from in Northern California, despite some of the liberal stereotypes that might surround that, and making that direct case in that big forum. The, the visuals were striking from Kamala Harris in a crowded field. She was signaling that she considers herself a frontrunner, and I think that the imagery uh, communicates exactly that to her rivals. And now, Rick, uh, we know that uh, Bernie Sanders is, is also eyeing a run, a number of other Senate Democrats looking to get in as well. Uh, give us your latest take on how many more Democrats you think will get in, and is there a cutoff point, uh, sort of a conventional wisdom cutoff point for when, when they have to announce? A zillion. Is a zillion an actual <laughs> number, Devin? Can we go with that? I, I think we, we're talking about two dozen or so Democrats making the run, Bernie Sanders probably among them. And what I have heard from most candidates is that, for the most part, they feel like the first quarter of this year, by the end of March, is when you have to do it. The exceptions to that, though, maybe a couple of people have more flexibility. Howard Schultz says a billionaire can do it. So can Mike Bloomberg, who's a billionaire, has talked about running third party in the past. He has said if he does it this time, it'll be as a Democrat. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, maybe a little bit of an Exception, although I think he's leaning to do it early. Joe Biden, because of his name recognition, and no one can talk about 2020 without Beto O'Rourke. His national fundraising base uh, makes him someone that could potentially get in a little bit on the later side. I think, though, most of the candidates are going to be known by the end of March. It's going to be very interesting to watch the spring unfold. Rick Klein, political director, thanks so much for that, Rick. Staying in Washington now, let's shift over to the White House, where the president had an eventful weekend uh, several days after ending that government shutdown, giving a new interview overnight um, and also responding to this widening field of Democratic uh, potential candidates. Let's bring in our Karen Travers now. She's at the White House. Karen, the president was up tweeting uh, very early today about Howard Schultz, of all people. I guess he was watching 60 Minutes. He was. The president said he watched that interview last night on 60 Minutes, and he said Howard Schultz does not have the guts to run for president. He says he agrees with Schultz that he's not the smartest person. And then a little bit of self-flattery there, Devin. The president says America already has that, referring presumably to himself. This almost is like a dare to Howard Schultz to get into this race. Certainly a lot of speculation about what that would do to a Democratic nominee, maybe pulling away support and that helping the president. It's going to be interesting, though, to see as these Democratic candidates jump in, Rick saying a couple dozen maybe there, how many the president decides to uh, comment on and who he decides is worth his tweet and others who he'll just let announce and move on. Yeah, he certainly hasn't engaged with all the Democrats so far mm -hmm. to come forward, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of federal workers today back on the job. A huge sense of relief in Washington just came up this morning. Uh, let's, let's listen to some of these workers out in California, actually, federal workers in California who are headed back to work today. Take a listen. I am relieved with reservation. Um, I am excited I get to go back to work. Um, although, you know, when, when the announcement is made that we get to go back to work, but uh, there's no um, hesitance to shut it back down again in three weeks, that's, you know, very unnerving. I could be back here again. Just looking at the Facebook feeds, everyone's, like, worried. And then it just builds up even more and more towards the end. Have you been furloughed or are you continuing to work without a paycheck? Uh, working without a paycheck. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, now that it's back open, I think we will still go back on Monday at 12. That's exciting, because at least I know that a, the next paycheck will be coming in about two weeks. Um, I'm excited and I'm happy that it's over and going to get back to work. <laughs> that's what, that's what I'm, I'm really looking forward to. So back to work, but the clock is ticking. Karen, only three weeks on this on this funding measure. Negotiations underway, but the president overnight is saying he doesn't think it's likely they'll reach a deal. Yeah, less than 50-50 odds. That's what the president said in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Devin. The president doesn't seem confident that lawmakers are going to give him something that he can accept. And that first interview you played there, unnerving, that's a really important word here because I think there's certainly a sense among federal workers about being concerned that the president would follow through on the threat he made on Friday here at the White House, that he would shut down the government again in three weeks if he had to because he is going to dig in his heels on funding for a border wall. But, Devin, the other big element on the table, of course, is that option to declare a national emergency. Uh, the president's acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, over the weekend said something that I think is very key to think about for the next three weeks. He says the administration has already identified more than $5.7 billion by asking cabinet uh, heads and the heads of agencies and departments to look under every nook and cranny to try and come up with some money that they could put aside in a pot to build the border wall. That's what the president could do if he declared that emergency. He's certainly being egged on by people like Lindsey Graham, his Republican ally on Capitol Hill. But, Devin, uh, there are other Republicans who say this would not be a good path to go down for the president. It would set a bad precedent and it would just get tied up in court. So the president can't just write himself that big check and start building the wall moments after declaring an emergency. Yeah, a lot of blowback, too, about the possibility of another shutdown to get that wall. So we'll see these three weeks how they unfold. Karen, uh, you know, you also have your pulse on conversations out there in the middle of the country, uh, talking with radio stations today from uh, all different corners of the, of the nation. Give us a sense of what they're talking about. What, what are people out there interested in when it comes to the shutdown? The big question I got this morning on radio, everybody wanted to recap how the shutdown ended on Friday and go over the president's comments, but that threat of doing it again, the question I kept hearing from radio anchors on ABC stations was, would he actually do that again? Would he put these federal workers in that position in just three weeks after they get back to work, after the government and the economy get back up and running? How could he do that? And I think that's an interesting question for Republican lawmakers, and we certainly saw them over the week. And many signaling they thought this did not go well. Nothing was gained from 35 days of the government being shut down. The poll numbers were not good for the president or Republicans. And you certainly saw little appetite to be back in this position in three weeks. That'll be the big key. Do Republicans break with the president? And I hope uh, that we have an optimistic, positive outcome this time, Karen, at the end of this negotiation period. Thanks so much for your reporting, as always, Karen. Uh, much more on the shutdown later today in the briefing room, 3.30 Eastern time here on ABC News. News Live. Finally today, the big story that everyone seems to be talking about in politics stemmed from some comments made yesterday on Meet the Press on NBC by NBC anchor Tom Brokaw. He said that Hispanics should, quote, work harder at assimilation. Here's a little bit more of what he said. Take a listen. I also happen to believe that the Hispanics should work harder at assimilation. That's one of the things I've been saying for a long time. You know, that they ought not to be just codified in their communities, but make sure that all of their kids are learning to speak English and that they feel comfortable in the communities. And that's going to take outreach on both sides, frankly. And our senior national correspondent, Tom Yamas, uh, joins us now for a little more on this. Tom, you know, I, I, I was struck 
really surprised to hear this coming from Tom Brokaw, somebody who has spent a lot of time reporting in all different parts of the country, obviously an experienced journalist. Uh, but this isn't only offensive, it's just downright inaccurate. That's right. And I think your, your earlier point is right. I mean, you go to someone like Tom Brokaw, who is whose business is the facts. I mean, he's not a pundit. He's not a politician. He's not a, a talk radio show host. He's Tom Brokaw, who was the lead anchor at NBC News for so many years and, and is a senior correspondent now at that network. So it was hurtful. And you're right. It's just it's not true. Besides being ignorant, it's just not true. You, you look at Pew and, and the studies are there. The vast majority of children who are Hispanic speak English. They're learning English. We can put up those stats now if we want. Uh, but once you look at that data, and this is one of them right here, and this is actually, it should say 88% of Latinos ages 5 to 17 speak only English at home or speak English very well. 76% of Latinos ages 18 to 33 only speak English at home or speak English very well. And when you look at all the data, it actually shows that Hispanics are speaking less Spanish at home and more English. So it's just simply not true. And, and I've covered immigration both with, with people who have come here legally and undocumented immigrants. I lived this story myself. My parents came from Cuba. They did not speak English. I have never heard of any Hispanic ever telling their children, don't learn English. It's just, it, it's a fallacy. Um, and he has apologized, and I think we should accept that apology. Some people have said he could have maybe been a little more forceful in that apology, but he, he blamed his, uh, his Twitter portal or something. He said it was whack. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think he's, he's having some, some trouble there, but, it, but it's okay. Um, but what's not okay is that we, we haven't heard more from others surrounding this because those comments were made at, on Meet the Press, which so many people tune in to watch. Uh, thankfully, Yamish, who was one of the, the reporters on that panel from PBS, did chime in and did say something. She's from Miami, where I'm from, and she thankfully challenged that. But others should have challenged that as well, because you can't just let a comment like that hang there when it comes from someone like Tom Brokaw. Yeah, and on such a venerable program, there is, has been no comment from NBC News on this. Uh, but as you said, uh, Tom Brokaw said he did feel terrible. He said uh, later last night on Twitter he's truly sorry. Uh, but perhaps there's a lesson here, Tom. You've, you've talked a little bit about how this is yet another reminder of the need for diversity in more newsrooms across the country. Look, I think it's a textbook example why you need people of color both on and behind the camera in newsrooms, but all across the country in politics, in business. We need to have a, a variety of opinions. We need to understand where people are coming from. You know, you can have your opinion. And some people agree with Tom Brokaw. And in this country, one of the things that makes it great is that you can agree with that. It doesn't make it right. And we needed more people there to challenge that, to say it's not right. Thankfully, again, Yamish was there. She was able to do that. But we needed uh, more to be said. And also, you, you have to wonder, you know, the children or, or the young people that are going to be watching this and who heard that? Because there were other comments made as well that he said he had heard from Republicans who said something to the effect of, you know, we don't want brown grandbabies. That needs to be qualified as a racist statement. You can't just parrot what people say without giving it some kind of qualification and putting it into context and proper context. It's not okay to say those things. Yeah, and certainly uh, it strays from the facts, to be sure. Uh, Tom, it's such an important conversation. At least we're having it in the wake of uh, that episode yesterday. Thanks so much for your reporting and your views. Appreciate it very much. Uh, and thank you for watching The Debrief here on ABC News Live. Hope you'll join us later today, 3.30 Eastern Time for The Briefing Room. And, of course, we have World News Prime coming up tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Download the ABC News app if you don't have it already. You can watch us all day there and, of course, follow the latest in all these stories. I'm Devin Dwyer in New York. Thanks so much for watching. Have a good day.